You are listening to a Nerd Room podcast production. We the Nerd. Bunch of nerds. Hey everyone and welcome to the Nerd Room where we talk all things Star Wars, Marvel, and DC. I'm going to be your master of ceremonies for tonight. I'm Carlos, and I'm here with my boy, Tim. Timbo, how are you? I'm very well. I got one thing to say. Wakanda forever. That was kind of weird coming from the white guy, but uh, we'll allow it <laughs> on uh, this year podcast. But uh, yeah, in case you were wondering why we flipped the script, uh, that's why. It's movie review time, which means uh, I take the reins of the pod for the evening but uh yeah we will be diving into wakanda forever we'll start off with a bit of spoiler free talk and then we'll give you lots of warning uh when we get into spoiler territory so you can have a bit of a sample platter as to our thoughts on the film and then jam out until you've had a chance to give it a watch but before we dive into the movie uh there was a pretty profound moment in the world of nerd that uh, unfortunately took place uh, to the surprise of many of us and that was the passing of Kevin Conroy mm-hmm. the absolutely legendary legendary voice of Batman through Batman the animated series the Arkham series of video games and a number of other projects to the point where he is that voice that we hear when you read Batman comics or when you think about the character, uh, Bruce Wayne, his alter ego, and Kevin Conroy's voice are all indelibly linked. So, you know, he was the the voice of the character for a couple generations of us fans. And mm-hmm. for me, like, I came to Batman via comics and then the 89 movie, but... When that show hit the screen and that energy coupled with his voice, that was that was Batman distilled down to his purest form. And uh, I definitely owe Kevin Conroy a, a debt of gratitude for that. And yeah, man, this one this one actually hit me pretty hard. Uh, I'm not one to get too beclamped over celebrity deaths and you know always just kind of grateful for what they gave us but you know it's the circle of life and that but honestly like this one was second to mj for me Mm -hmm. like it uh it was to the point where i had a moment where i was like man i really wish i didn't kind of take him for granted and he was always around always on the con circuit and stuff so you just got used to Kevin Conroy being a fixture and I had no idea that he was ill and um, yeah, the, the passing kind of came out of nowhere, but yeah, man. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things too. Like you said, you're so caught off guard with, with people passing, especially he was only about 66, wasn't he? 65, Mm -hmm. 68, somewhere in that. So, you know, definitely I'm not sure if he was ill or not, but you know, a big hit. And the thing I think that jumped out to me most because I believe, you know, in that 92 space when, you know, with Batman, the animated series and that, that was like the first Batman that I really spent a lot of time with, you know, there's Adam West and all that, but, but that, that version of Batman was the one that, that really hooked me in. 
And the thing that really took me aback this week was just the general outpouring of, of, I guess, sadness and, and people on my timeline really having a difficult time coming to terms with the passing of Kevin Conroy. And, you know, I, I've always known that he was an important piece of the Batman lore, but I don't think I ever really appreciated how much people really connected to him being Bruce Wayne, being Batman until his passing, which like you said, is a very unfortunate thing because sometimes it takes someone passing someone passing to to really emphasize their cultural importance almost with a character like this and how many different generations, like you said, that he as a person acting in that role touched and brought into Batman and led them down the path to comic books or something larger inside of that space. And so yeah, you know, many condolences to to his family and, you know, to all those people out there that are are struggling a bit more with with the passing here of Kevin Conroy. Yeah, man, and like you just look at some of the people that eulogized him and even things like the Empire State Building sending out their condolences mm-hmm. from their official account just really speaks to how he in that role transcended and um it sounds like we might ironically get one last piece of his uh, voice and the Batman role or Batman adjacent role. And it's something that I've always loved the concept of, but apparently he was to be Thomas Wayne in the Batman Cape Crusader show. Oh, really? So, yeah, I don't know if you recorded it or if that's something that we have or hopefully it's not something that they just planned. Hopefully it's something that's kind of in the can and waiting. Um, because that would be wonderful. Like I, I love mm-hmm. the idea of that being a bit of a passing of a torch and, uh, yeah, like Kevin Conroy, he, he lived a life and his life was not easy. If you haven't read it, uh, he wrote a short story that was in this year's DC pride, um, issue that they put out. So every year they put out, uh, a pride issue for the LGBTQ plus community, uh, to celebrate, uh, their uh, their experiences through the comic book characters. And this year, Kevin Conroy actually wrote uh, the anchor story for it, but it was basically an autobiography. And uh, it was pretty powerful stuff. Like, he did not live an easy life growing up. He had some pretty challenging circumstances. And then, you know, mm-hmm. once he got his feet under him and started acting talks about the challenges that he faced uh, with bigotry and discrimination, being a gay man, trying to make his way in Hollywood. And uh, it's really, really um, puts an exclamation point on the life and career of the man. So if you haven't had a chance to read it, uh, DC made it actually available for free. So you can read it through their DC universe infinite service and, um, just check their Twitter feed and the link is in there. Or if you just open the app that's available on there and it, uh, it was a, a pretty, uh, pretty sombering read, especially that first bit. And it's, it's only like 10 pages maybe. And maybe the last two pages talk about him getting the role, but, uh, the way he details his journey is, uh, it's pretty powerful. So strongly recommend that you check that out. Um, yeah, so rest in peace, Kevin Conroy. But on to the main event 
for today um and then honestly almost equally somber uh, mm. experience in what was black panther wakanda forever only the most broken people leaders his people did not call him general or king they called him kukul khan the feather serpent god killing him will risk eternal war. He's coming. For the surface world. We know what you whisper. So obviously this film was made in the specter of the passing of Chadwick Boseman, also extremely unexpected. And um, they really, really leaned into the, uh, the fact that this was a reality that they had to deal with, with mm -hmm. the, with the circumstances in front of them. And, uh, they seem to have pulled it off to some great success. It um, was very well received by the critics, got a A cinema score, which was solid. It ended up setting a record for the November box office hall. And it, it didn't do as well as the first movie. I was, I was kind of curious to see what would happen. And with the passing of Chadwick Boseman, uh, what would happen with the box office, but it ended up falling kind of in between Multiverse of Madness and Thor 4, but extremely successful in all regards. And um, yeah, I, Timbo, why don't you uh, let myself and the listeners know, just kind of in a sentence or two, as we like to do, what your high-level thoughts were, spoiler-free, on your experience with Wakanda Forever. Well, it was one of those experiences, like I said last week, that I wasn't kind of at this extremely high hype level, but that I was excited to see what they were going to put to screen, and particularly what Kugler was able to do with what I'm assuming is quite a pivot from what originally was meant to be in Black Panther 2. So walking out of the theater, I really didn't know what to think. I found that this is one of those movies that I really enjoyed, but I couldn't make a snap judgment on things. I found that it's a very complex movie. Um, emotionally, the some of the the characters, and really I think what Kugler was able to put to screen, I don't think can be appreciated in one viewing. 
And that's something that I that I stepped away with. You know, when I watched Thor Love and Thunder, when I watched Multiverse of Madness, even No Way Home, I felt that I had kind of an immediate judgment on how I felt exiting the theater. And this one was different. It was a different experience than really any film in phase four. And I'm excited to get into the why or why at least I think those reasons are that I felt that way. But ultimately, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I love Namor was amazing. And Latita writes, Shuri's character had a beautiful arc throughout this. And the way they dealt with all of Chadwick Boseman and T'Challa and all that, I thought was really well done. But it's a complex movie. And I think it it probably deserves a couple of streaming rewatches to fully appreciate what Cooler is able to pull together in this one. Yeah, no, well said, man. Um, for me, we'll get into the nitty gritty of everything, but uh, I will say that the hierarchy of power with my phase four rankings is about to change. <laughs> so that... I can uh, see why. <laughs> <laughs> that... Um, is all I'll say for now as far as the the film goes and what my experience was with it. But um, if you've listened to even two episodes of this show, you'll know that what they did with Wakanda Forever was definitely far more in my wheelhouse than what mm-hmm. we've seen from from the MCU recently. So, man, like like we said, it's a bit of a different film from what we've got uh, out of the MCU of late. Uh, what are your thoughts on kind of the construction and tone and framework that they went with the film as a whole and also in the context of that, like how they decided to weave in the passing of Chadwick Boseman and carry the movie forward? Mm-hmm. I thought I thought it was really well done, to be honest with you, because they, they had to live up to this impossible task of being a sequel to one of their most highly praised films and culturally important films coming off the back end of not only the in-universe stories like the the post-end game but also having to deal with the passing of the lead T'Challa Chadwick Boseman in this and so facing that tall task in and itself could have been a, a too daunting task for them to even decide to put this to screen but I really do commend the likes of Ryan Coogler and Kevin Feige for being able to construct this in a way that it both honored Chadwick Boseman, that character, but it really picked up the legacy of what they built and progressed the story forward. Mm-hmm. And there are there's a lot of references to it, and a lot of the character development is heavily weighted inside of the passing of T'Challa specifically his mom and and Shuri. But they able, they're able to use it in, I think, a responsible way and a constructive way to build something that is one of the most emotionally impactful stories told inside of the MCU. Maybe the most, if you step back and look at it. And that's why I said at the top that it's such a complex story that I don't think I fully appreciate exactly how it's all been done. But... I, I, I just kind of adore how it was all all really laid out. And I think the construction really serves as a benefit to to the film. I think in other types of films, this much 
dialogue might have been something that took away from the film, but for its runtime, Kugler uses every single word to be an impactful, progressive, and really driving force behind this narrative. Yeah, I I agree for the most part. Like I thought that they just picked up the ball where it laid and ran mm-hmm. with it was one of the most admirable things ever. And that they used the passing of Bozeman as the the fundamental core that carries through the entire movie was pretty bold and very mm-hmm. unexpected, but it made for a, a very compelling movie um, and something outside of what Marvel's comfort zone typically is. Mm-hmm. So I really had to commend them for just doing what felt real and doing what they thought would honor not only him, but the story of Black Panther the best. Um, you could really tell that this was a labor I don't want to call it a labor of love, but it was something that was put together with a lot of care and attention mm-hmm. and that everybody worked collaboratively to make sure that it didn't fail. You could tell that Marvel Studios and Kevin Feige did what they could to support Kugler's vision, who then leaned on his cast and his co-writers and collaborators to make sure that this thing came together in a very compelling and very moving and um, very earnest way. So yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised at like how the vast majority of this movie and definitely everything that dealt with the Wakandans and the people that surrounded T'Challa came together mm-hmm. Um and I got to give a shout out to the cinematography mm-hmm. in this movie. So like a lady named Autumn Durald Arkadan was a cinematographer on this. And like I said, when we did our hype show a couple weeks ago, that the fact that they shot as much of this movie on location as they did seemed to really benefit them based on the trailers. And then just seeing how she was able to capture that and put it together in the final product with the CGI and the rest of the special effects and everything else that wasn't available on set, I thought it came together beautifully. So this definitely sets the bar for the MCU going forward. And I know the original Black Panther, that was the major slight that people had against it with some of the visuals. But Especially in the third act. Yeah, this movie, it was, it was some of their best, I think. Um, mm-hmm. If not their very best to be perfectly honest with you, because we so rarely get to see on location stuff from the MCU. So yeah, I really loved it myself. So um, for anybody who hasn't seen it, we'll probably start wading into the spoilers here a little bit. So um, just put us on pause, go check out the movie and come back and listen to the balance of the review. But for those of you who have seen it or who aren't uh, overly sensitive to spoilers, by all means, we will trudge on. And with that, the one thing that I was kind of shocked that they um, utilized in the film, but it's probably the biggest compliment and ovation I could give them, is the fact that T'Challa died of 
natural causes mm-hmm. that he succumbed, succumbed to some kind of illness and the Wakandan science couldn't find a solution for it. And that, uh, he ended up leaving them as their king. And I thought that that was the most bold choice ever because I had it in my head that you were going to get some kind of battle with the Black Panther or you'd get the aftermath of a battle with the Black Panther and Namor or some other foe foe who um, felled him. And that was going to be how they explained his passing away, but that they decided to just essentially utilize what the real world circumstances were, I thought was a very bold choice and to weave what Shuri perceived as her failure into his passing Mm -hmm. and carry that forward as um, her defining narrative thread as the story progressed, I thought was a masterstroke. If I, give any compliment to this film that is what it is is that they were able to take that and do such a phenomenal job with laying the seeds for what their story was going to be yeah i have to fully agree with you there because that was the thing that i'd say towards the end of the film especially once we had the battle with namor going on and shuri and the black panther um armor it what what utilizing that piece of it and and demonstrating vulnerability even for the most powerful nation and arguably the most powerful ruler on earth with all of the science and technology at their fingertips they still couldn't solve this issue and mm-hmm. to have it like you said be an illness or a virus or something to that effect and i don't think you get as powerful of a performance out of Angela Bassett or Latita Wright, if this is not written this way. I think that, like you said, using it as a failure, but also using it in the film as a vulnerability because like the passing of, of Angela Bassett's character, Ramonda, was a shock to me. I didn't know Shuri was going to make it out of this film. Mm-hmm. And so for the first time in a long time inside of a big MCU movie, there was major, major stakes to all of this. I was shocked that his mother passed in this. Absolutely shocked. And that, to me, turned this whole movie on its head. Like, the climactic piece, I do not know what's going to happen. I don't know if M'Baku's going to make it out. I don't know if Shuri's going to make it out. I I was in a place where anything kind of goes here because they are taking this this significant real-world piece and weaving it so masterfully into this that everyone is showing this vulnerability that you don't normally see in these superheroes, right? Like Thor and Spider-Man, you all know they're going to have another movie. And this one, I didn't know where they were going to go with Wakanda. And that made the film so engaging, especially in the third act where you're kind of with some of these films, you get to a point where you're like, I kind of know what's going to happen in the third act here. There might be a moment where there there's a little bit of stakes, but you kind of know that, Tom Holland Spider-Man is going to make it out or Hemsworth Thor is going to, you know what I mean? This, Mm -hmm. the third act was up in the air. I didn't know where they're going to take Namor. I didn't know where they're taking anything. And, you know, we get into the big, one of the big cameos in this, her character, Shuri's character really goes sideways at one point. Right. Um, And moves away from doing the honorable thing into just seeking pure revenge. 
and it's 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 an immensely complicated thread to tug on but done in the right light like i think it is here it is really powerful and it makes for one of the best watches inside of the mcu especially more recently yeah no absolutely and yeah with that like let's talk about kind of wakanda and where it's left with ramonda as its new queen and ruler and their place on the world stage like i loved all that stuff that they did at the beginning of it with the un and the us and france kind of pressuring the wakandans to uh give wider access to vibranium and Ramonda drawing the hard line into the fact that they're not giving it up and the why that we simply can't trust you. It kind of reminded me of Bruce Wayne in the dark Knight rises when Alfred's like, well, why don't you just give the police your tech? And he's like, no, in the wrong hands, my tool is somebody else's weapon. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that, that was cool that they refused to yield, um, their power that comes from the vibranium, but not because it was an arms race per se, but because they just didn't trust what the rest of the world would do with that um, technology and the the power that comes with vibranium. And then that the lack of nobility in the rest of the world started to shine through with the assault on the Wakandan vessel Mm -hmm. to try and steal vibranium and the fact that France basically risked an international incident and going to war with Wakanda by sending their mercenaries on there and that the Wakandan, like the Dormilaji were able to subdue them and march them into the UN. I thought that was amazing. And, um, Angela Bassett had so many cool deliveries during that scene. Badass, man. Her whole character in this, especially that scene, unbelievable. Yeah, she was super cool. And I I really liked what they did with Wakanda in in this movie, that they were just trying to find their place a little bit without a king, but still knew exactly what they were all about and what they wanted to be. And... uh, also that it brought into question T'Challa's decision at the end of the original movie to mm-hmm. bring them into the into the spotlight and to kind of reveal what they're all about and that that was the major driving force behind Namor and his actions and why he decided to emerge onto the world stage as well, um, or at least in a far greater way than he ever had before but yeah what did you think about how they handled wakanda and ramonda and the emergence of uh talokan yeah it was it was one of those things that we had talked about in the lead up to this through watching all the trailers and kind of trying to speculate what the construction of this film was actually going to be and for wakanda in itself to become a character inside of this world and the excitement around potentially exploring that a bit more because we got a a real good introduction in Black Panther 1 and what was it going to be in a post-Endgame, post-T'Challa world. And like you said, the setup and how they used Wakanda as... or to provide some kind of social commentary, which we expected inside of this film, but not really to this degree, to say kind of this MacGuffin being a little bit of the vibranium again, but in the sense that... You know, it parallels nuclear proliferation and weapons of mass destruction, something that we're seeing a lot of in in our environment that we're currently living in. And should one nation have all of control of this? But there's this inherent 
trust in the Wakandans that they're able to establish through that first scene where we all agree, oh yeah, the Wakandans are fine to have this. And I don't want the Americans to have it. I don't want the French to. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing to say, but that scene in itself, I think, was pretty powerful. And Angela Bass's delivery across the board, but especially here, that speech, we saw a bit of it in the trailer, unfreaking believable. And marching in those troops, what a powerful scene. But honestly, the thing that got me the most excited, and I remember sitting back in my chair, my very uncomfortable Cineplex chair, and saying, shit. The Dormelage are freaking badasses. Like it's like that fight at the start that really kind of underscores again a lot of what Wakanda kind of represents inside of this mm-hmm. was uh, they've always had really good fight scenes, but the Dormelage really stuck out to me in this film. Like they have a really great showing, even with some of the turbulence inside of um uh of inside of themselves with kind of the decisions that they've made. And, and we will talk about it in a little bit about losing uh, the princess there, but man, Wakanda in itself, like, I don't think we got like the full, like broad scaping scope of what Wakanda is. It felt smaller to me in this film, to be honest with you, than it mm-hmm. did previously. Like we got to see a little bit less of, of what's going on, a little bit less of the tribes. We're not, You know, there's some pretty powerful stuff at the start with the funeral and all that. Um, But I was okay with it feeling a little smaller, you know. It it felt a bit more like a personal country or personal story being told in around Wakanda. It wasn't as big. You know, maybe before the passing of of Chadwick, it was a much bigger Wakanda story. Wakanda as a character, I will say. Uh, But I I really liked what they did with with the country and, and the significant characters inside of it. And, you know, with M'Baku and all that, like his arc was was great in this too. And the role that he's taken up even after being defeated inside of and being more antagonistic inside of Black Panther 1 too. Yeah, like to be honest, with it feeling a bit smaller, that's probably a lack of using the volume on this movie and shooting on location, right? Yeah. So you're going to actually have to build stuff and you can only fit so many digital assets into the spaces that you're shooting. But um, I think because it was so well established through yes, not only the first movie but also Infinity War as well. Mm-hmm. That yeah, I I was fine with it. I um, I definitely dug that. Um, I really liked how they introduced Tulkan and Namor, <sighs> and what his driving motivation was. I adored his origin story. How it basically just paralleled for his entire people the heart-shaped herb with the wakandans or with the black panther uh in specific and yeah just that they tied it into the spanish colonialism and his people getting driven into the water and it, it was just such an inspired way to introduce that character I loved his mutation origin story. Mm-hmm. And then when he comes to bury his mother and they go to that plantation and he sees the uh, continued inhumanity of the colonizers to towards his countrymen and his brethren. And that being what sets the paradigm for Namor. And I love that they left him as a bit of a villain 
for the entire movie. And not that he's evil, but just that he's doing what he needs to do to preserve his people at all costs, even if that cost is another society type of thing. So I, I like that. And I like that they kept him consistent through the entire film where he mm-hmm. never, never wavered, no matter how horrific his actions were. He never wavered. Like even when he kills Ramonda, he just kind of says like, yeah, this is the consequence of your actions. And just so you know, we're coming back. So this was your shot across the bow. And um, we have other plans if you don't play ball, because this is what I feel I need to do to protect our people. So um, I really, really liked how they established their society, how they established Namor, what his worldview and mindset was as a king. The other thing on a side note that I absolutely loved was that you could tell that there was an active effort to differentiate the look and feel of Tolokan from Atlantis in the Aquaman movies. And it worked just as well. And it was its completely own thing but it felt perfect and wonderful and it didn't tread on other ground, didn't try and do something that was greater spectacle, didn't try and do something vastly different either with them not having this. It was just a unique set of people. And yeah, I, I loved it. I thought they did everything surrounding Namor, the way, like you hate him through the course of the movie, but you understand him which I think is such a hard thing to pull off, but they did perfectly. It's it's the hardest part about a villain to pull off to make it believable into the point where at times you sympathize with Namor and his cause. And although trying or really being the villain of the story to a degree, I don't know if I'd call him the, the true villain, but in a similar sense to, to Killmonger, and even Thanos in Infinity War, when you have a villain that truly believes what they are doing is right, and it's not just to be evil or to gain power, but it is to protect something that they truly believe in, and that is expressed through the acting, through the writing, and through the character development, it really emphasizes how powerful the clash of these two nations is towards the end and how well developed someone like Namor, right? Like he is, he's one of the first, if not like outside of the human torch, the first Marvel character, like inside Mm -hmm. of the comics. Right. And so he's got a legacy that spans, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And for them to, to, put this character recontextualize him give him a a really cool origin even his name right and how it's tied as mm-hmm. being you know a son or a boy that has no love it's it's i that is the standout to me in here is namor and i am i want more of him i want more of of talokan i want to see how it progresses but more fundamentally like it's funny that you said you like you hated him. I never hated the guy. I never 
saw him as like the true evil here like in my brain i'm like well who who's the bad guy here is it is it the americans is it the rest of the world is it is who is the bad guy here and like i guess more fundamentally it is namor but they're also they're also trying to do something they're trying to survive in a similar way that wakanda is but their approach is different no and way, so man. Kinda... He's, he's Vladimir Putining them. He's just trying to impose their political will on the Wakandans. And granted, my family hailing from Africa had me firmly on Team Wakanda. But like, <laughs> yeah, man, I wanted I wanted my girl to rip those damn wings off his feet. Like, F that guy. No, <sighs> like I, I thought and that that's the testament to them doing a good job with him. But um and it was well acted and that's what you want out of your villain because he is the villain uh is you want your audience to hate him and yeah i i don't and i'm not saying that his intentions were evil but certainly the way he went about it he's gonna kill some innocent girl just because she invented something yeah i can like i can see that but look at him flooding, <laughs> I flooding and wiping out all those people just because to try and force the Wakandan po- public policy, to force Wakanda into endorsing what he thought was the best way for them to carry themselves on the world stage, he like wiped out hundreds. He did. Of, I'm not excusing the the tyrant acts, but I I do want. I do understand. I don't really understand. Like, I guess it's a tyrant act, but there's, I think fundamentally, like in his brain, he's doing what's right. Oh yeah. No, I, I totally get that and concede that. But, um, really like, how is he any different than Dr. Doom? Dr. Doom wants what's best for Latveria. True. True. And we haven't seen Dr. Doom. I guess in my brain, I'm comparing him more to like, uh, like a yellow jacket or something like that, like a, a villain of that sense, right? Where you're like, yeah, this guy is just kind of like a twirling bad guy, twirling mustache bad guy. There's a lot, there's more layers to it, but I get, I'll, I'll, I'll concede. Yeah. He's a villain. Yeah. No, he was, uh... it, but like a great, great villain, like well acted and like that he's got a, a, 360 degree character which you don't get very often in these types of movies so mm-hmm. um that that was awesome like i i loved it but hated him at the same time which is yeah. uh like i said that that's what you want <laughs> yeah exactly you, you want you yeah you need to have i guess there needs to be a clear good and bad or antagonist protagonist relationship there um but it, but like i like that it's i like that it's complex but yeah, that's that's the thing with everybody in this movie is that all of them and all of their actions were very complicated and had some weight to them. Like Okoye was kind of the only one that you think is just picking up and doing her job and moving forward with um, what her role has been in the MCU. But then you have Ramonda and the throne who then has to call her out and you have her brought low as well and Mm -hmm. i I just love seeing these um rich characters brought to screen which we so rarely see and with that like primary amongst them all was um shuri 
like I adored how they handled her character. Like I mm-hmm. said, she had the guilt from her perceived failure to save her brother that they really played up the closeness of the two of them uh, as the driving motivation and the thing that held her back uh, as she kind of went through and that the Chala's death was something that was present with her the whole way yeah. through and with her when she's working to fight Talakan and to face Namor, it's not with the same altruism that the Black Panther has traditionally had for Wakanda, where it's to protect my people, where it becomes that this is for revenge. And to the point that when she ascends to the ancestral plane, it's Killmonger who sees her Mm -hmm. because he's the one who's the closest in worldview with her. And I thought that that was brilliant. And that was a great way to integrate Michael B. Jordan back into the movie without it feeling kind of tacked on and he doesn't get some redemption hero force ghost type of moment. He's still the same character in the same place as he was in the first movie, but they give a ton of reason and context and justification as to why he is the person that... Uh, she meets on the ancestral plane. So I thought that was cool. And I just, I loved from the beginning of the movie till the post credit scene. Um, she had that one through line and this evolving narrative thread that stayed consistent for the entire film. And like the, the first thought that I had is like, it was so unlike No Way Home where you set a whole bunch of stuff up and then it's Matt Murdock shows up and just has an exposition dump being like, oh, yeah, all that <laughs> stuff that just happened that we set up over the last movie and uh, your arrest and your de- – uh, it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, you, you have other problems. It's like, what? Okay. <laughs> so, so we're just going to leave that all on the table. So um, I love that they really, like, really, really grew her character through the entirety of the movie. And I thought that that was awesome. And it, it, I don't think they could have done a better job with Shuri in this movie. Fully agree. And I don't think you get, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that it's this circumstance that really ex- like where she sees her character excel, but mm-hmm. I don't think you get this powerful of a performance out of her in the absence of the unfortunate circumstance that this movie is constructed around. She mm-hmm. probably has, I, I don't, no, there's so many different arcs and that to think through inside of the MCU. But this could be one of the most, if not the most powerful, single character development and arc inside of a film, inside of the MCU. Where we're, we're left with her at the end of Infinity War? I can't remember if she's in Endgame. She is in Endgame, right? She's mm-hmm. in the final battle, right? But she's definitely a supporting character inside of those films, especially Black Panther 1. And, you know, she plays a role. She is the tech person. She's the, the, the genius and all that. Um, she fills a character void that T'Challa doesn't have, right? And in here, she evolves into a very three-dimensional character that is dealing with this incredible weight and grief. And that translates into something that isn't as 
as honorable as maybe the approach of T'Challa of like the true Black Panther. And like you said, the integration of Michael B. I didn't think that they were actually going to have him in this film. Um, but the way that they, they bridge that gap, like you said, and bring him in because the way she feels in this grief stricken mindset is way closer to him. Like I thought that was just genius mm-hmm. how I wanted to see Michael B. I liked him in black Panther one, but it seemed like a very definitive ending with the sunset and all the exposition around that and, and Killmonger's story, but bring him in here to kind of underscore where she's at. You know, this was a very, like I said, uh, dialogue heavy film, but his presence alone brings a whole nother dimension to her character and where she is at mentally, emotionally, mm-hmm. even physically before she kind of makes that last leap. And the fact that she won't share that with Nikia, she won't share that with anyone, I think is, is, is quite profound. And by the end of this film, you know, I didn't know how I was going to feel about, about Shuri in the, in, being the Black Panther. Can she hold this role? Can she hold her own? You know, it's, those are big, big shoes to fill. And I think she does it. And I'm like thoroughly impressed by the way that it was executed, but also by the way that, that Latina Wright delivered it all. Yeah. And I, I think they did it cool in that she's assumed the mantle out of responsibility and obligation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, she very much feels like she will pass that mantle on when yes. given the opportunity. And um, yeah, which kind of leads us to our post credit scene there in which Nakia introduces Shuri to her nephew, the son of T'Challa, um, like T'Challa the second type of thing. And I thought that this was really cool and it went over really well with my audience in the theater. But if I have a complaint, it's not so much that they did this and not so much that they introduced the young kid uh, at the end of the movie. And I love that they set up an heir to the throne and someone for her to pass the mantle to. But I hate that they left it for a post credit scene in its entirety and they kind of undercut a few things where you have this exposition dump about like, oh yeah, your mom met her and T'Challa kind of disappeared, but then we wanted to keep it secret. And like, if they had kind of hinted at him being there earlier in the film, mm-hmm. I think they could have served that moment a bit better. And also, I don't know, it, it, it felt cruel that Shuri wasn't told about the existence of her nephew and T'Challa having a son to me. Like if when Ramonda shows up in Haiti and when she asked Nakia to go on a mission, if there's a bit of a conversation about responsibility and not being able to go and she, Ramonda makes some comment about, you know, that she's there to do her duty and to, take care of things and Nakia's absence kind of hint, which would foreshadow the fact that she's talking about her grandson and taking care of him. I thought it was just kind of weird that you have Nakia go on this underwater spy mission, leaving her son and then like leaves Haiti and goes to Wakanda and gets in the middle of this war where she could die 
having left her son in Haiti. And nobody else knows about him except for his grandmother, who is also passed. Yeah. And it like it just it, it was there was a better way to do that without it just being a post credit scene. And I think they could have wove that in a bit better into the movie to make it feel a bit more natural uh, to me. Like, I, I don't know. Like, it just it felt weird. And I didn't – I liked what they went for and I liked what they got, but I didn't like how they got there, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I can see that because it did feel very abrupt to me. Like – in a post credit scene and you know there's lots of buzz about this scene before right and in your in your mind you let it run a little bit when it comes to marvel like you're thinking oh dr doom or is this a setup for something else crazy going on killmonger i don't know like you kind of you kind of speculate crazy i i didn't see this one coming to be honest with you the son of t'challa and i do agree with you when you kind of lay it out there i didn't really think of it that way i just felt like oh like this like this is a plan to eventually have T'Challa mm-hmm. back in sort of like way in the distant future. If they jump him in secret wars, I don't know how they're going to do it, but that it was a way of reintegrating the character without having to physically recast T'Challa the first. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you say it in that light, like how they could have maybe woven it better into the story. I do agree with you that there's like maybe having Shuri know about it and there being some underlying um, her, her desire to protect him in some way or that that you're right that they're like the, or there's a moment with Ramonda and Shuri that like there is like the there is another moment from Star Wars type thing where it's it's not this abrupt like oh like wow why didn't she know like she was meant to be so close with T'Challa but he ran off and had a kid without telling like the person that's meant to be his best friend yeah. I, I agree with you it is it is a bit strange and do you wonder, like, was that an add-on at some point where, you know, because they, they, at some point they said, you know, we're not recasting T'Challa's passing. That That's it. That is the line they drew in the sand. This seems like a a way around that a little bit, if I can say that, without being disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Because even the Rihanna song at the end, it's I don't know exactly what it's called, but there's discussion about reincarnation and all this type of thing inside of it, I believe. Um, or reborn or something like that. And they said they couldn't release that song until the day the film dropped because it had a little spoiler in it. So I don't know all the lyrics and all that, but if you listen to it, there's, I don't know if it's reincarnation or reborn or something like that. And so like Mm -hmm. in my head with that information, I'm reconnecting all the stuff that like, well, I'm the child of the second and you know, that's my Wakanda name and they got the song and these type of things. And so, you know, was that something they added later or, you know, was this always in the mix? Cause when you lay that in front of me, it feels like something was added a little later. Yeah. Like I, like I said, I, I like what they did, just not how they did it. Mm-hmm. And like the, the movie is already pretty long. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been kind of one of the knocks against it. And you know, like even my audience got a little listless to be honest with you. Like my wife actually made a comment to me after the film that she hadn't been in a movie where there's that much just kind of chatter amongst people in the audience mm-hmm. as she, as we had experienced in that one, I had a good seat, like a little ways away. So, uh, nobody <laughs> bothered me really, but, um, yeah, I, uh, like, I almost wonder 
if you couldn't have wove those little pieces in and then dropped all the stuff with Everett Ross because it really didn't do a ton except setting up the great value suicide squad <laughs> and that freaking Valentino, whatever, DeFranceschi, whatever, whatever. Like, man, I hate that character already. And that she just seemed to bloat an already long movie and was so cringe in this one. I was like, man. She was definitely toned down yeah. from what she had been in the past. Like from the whatever is the introduction in Falcon and Winter Soldier or whatever. Like I found Hawkeye? her toned way oh, down yeah. from that. Um, there's no jokey, jokey stuff. She was pretty straightforward. I At least I thought in this film. I don't know. She like walks up and says she wants to ride Ross's Peloton. So, <laughs> <laughs> And then they it's... were like exes or something like that yeah like, that was really know. weird they're formally married and it did feel like because everett ross has some inherent connection to the first black panther movie it wasn't totally as disjointed as having like someone else in there that is running around but it was definitely the one piece that it felt like coogler didn't write <laughs> mm-hmm. that it was like it was notes handed to him by feige from someone else saying like we need to start really pushing this thunderbolts thing and it felt like a way to get um danny garcia's character i can never say her name right okay okay oh there he is i can never say that it can't doesn't come off my tongue but it felt like a way to get her out of that franchise because it seems like she's gonna end up as maybe one of the antagonists to the thunderbolts if i'm not mistaken the way that kind of end that arc like They've extracted her from Wakanda and given her job to someone else, one of the other Dora the Malaja that we saw in Falcon yeah. and Winter Soldier and all that. And and so they've taken her out. So it felt like a way to push this Thunderbolts thing, but also to extract her from the franchise a little bit. Oh, maybe. I didn't read into her taking it. Well, she's got like that suit now and all this kind of stuff, and she's not like a Dora Malaja anymore. So she doesn't like come with the same sort of commitment to Wakanda. And so yeah. like they kind of get around by not having to explain her presence that she goes and picks up Ross. Cause he looks like he's going to be on the other side of the Thunderbolts. Maybe I don't know. That's kind of the feeling I got and that he needed some sort of team or superhero, at least that was connected to him in some more tangible way. And now her having the suit kind of gives her the ability to go toe to toe with someone like a taskmaster or a red guardian that are amped up with, with different sort of super soldier stuff and all that. And so that's kind of what I, I that's, that's the parallel I made is that oh. they're, they're Maybe. definitely doing that, but I thought she was just gonna basically live on until she becomes a singer in the Fifth Element. But <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I, I I don't know what they were doing with that, but it just it just felt unnecessary, really. Like the only scene I liked with that group was when um, they have the meeting with the American representative in the UN there. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of talking about what their what their next moves are gonna be. I, I thought it was a nice follow up to the UN opening and setting up the conflict between the United States and a couple of its allies in Wakanda. But yeah, for the most part, like those were the only two things that I really didn't love. Like it definitely Riri, felt out of place. Like, yeah, that whole sequence, like it was not 
except for maybe like you said the part where they meet and he gives them the information because that that gives the connection to riri right mm-hmm. um and it's through a character that is familiar with them and that they trust inside of the government um and so i i that worked for me but then yeah shoehorning this other stuff in like they should bring back the freaking marvel one shots like that is a one shot where you can be like oh, totally like, it, totally it would, that's a great like on the on a just drop them on Disney Plus as like I used to love those one shots, but they used to bridge weird gaps with them, right? And like then fix stuff and band aid over like canon or continuity errors with it. Like put them in a car and have them drive for like an eight minute one shot on Disney Plus, and you do the same thing and you don't distract from this film that you have going on. Totally, yeah. You shave like maybe fifteen minutes out of the movie, put mm-hmm. another two minutes to fix the stuff with the child of the second, and yeah, just have the one scene for him to give them the lead to Riri and yeah. job yeah. done, right? Yeah. yeah, or you probably lose 20 minutes of the movie, really, if you think about it with all the stuff with the uh, with the beads and whatnot with him. But yeah, whatever. Very small negative amongst a sea of positives with this movie for me. Um, Riri, what about uh, Riri? Well, yeah, you know what? And maybe our conversation kind of speaks to that a little bit, that... Um, I really liked her. My perception of her is tainted. And like I said, in our preview show, uh, her presence was a big deal in my household because my daughter is a big Riri fan and was looking forward to seeing this character that she had discovered through comics and, uh, ended up following through most of her appearances, um, seeing, uh, her realized in live action. I, I thought the actress that played her had a really cool energy. Mm-hmm. I thought they did a good job of, despite the obvious ties with her genesis to Iron Man uh, in the books, that they kept her away from Iron Man. Uh, I, I liked how they used her, and I didn't mind her being a bit of a of a MacGuffin. Like, maybe if you tie her connection to the world governments and the search for vibranium a bit closer. I think they maybe played her um, or the origin of her vibranium locator a bit true altruistically. Mm-hmm. So it, it took away a bit from uh, Talokan's pursuit of her. But yeah, if she had, if she had just been some kid that, the U S government gave a scholarship to, to do this for them, like job done. Right. Like it's, you know, I don't have the money to pay for coming to MIT. So I needed this, this money. And you know, it has a bit of a conversation as to the reality. A few people find themselves in where just the, the needs of society maybe, um, cause their moral compass to bend a little bit and, that's just fine. It's just a matter of, it just the realities of life in this world kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I think they could have done a bit better job with that, but uh, yeah, on the whole, she was fine. I don't really have any complaints with her and they used her no. probably as efficiently as you could, but that we never yeah, talked about I, her also says something. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I think she, like you said, she's a bit of a MacGuffin and like, I did have a little bit of, 
mental gymnastics to get over to to bridge the gap between you know Wakanda's always been you know isolated nation. We we believe very much in in protecting ourselves, and yeah, they have stepped out and you know with T'Challa and all that, being protectors of of a of, of a larger population and that. But the the willingness to sacrifice so much for to protect like one person, you know, I guess that's an, an important hero trait. But you do sacrifice a lot in in that sense. And it does lead to the conflict, I guess, more so. And it kind of pushes that narrative forward between Wakanda and Telekan and all that. But again, she did feel like another note that was slipped to Coogler and saying, please include this character. And mm-hmm. it's woven in. It's another character that, you know, she does drive some of the cooler fight sequences because there's there's not a lot of that in this film. You take the, like the end battle, there's the the flooding, which isn't really a huge fight scene. Um, a oh, little bit. But that was one of the best action sequences ever in. Oh, it's so good, right? With Namor. Like, well, and just you—you you actually felt for the Wakandans in peril and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was powerful stuff. Like I, I love that and that mm-hmm. sense of loss and the urgency and like if you're gonna have these, for lack of a better term, like mass casualty events maybe you don't always have to have everything happening off screen and you can have how it's affecting people uh, at the street level showcased a little bit because then it drives up the stakes and the urgency for your hero and gets your audience invested in what they have to do and why. And it makes all the spectacle matter. So yeah, I thought that that was awesome. Like I, I love that stuff. And yeah, like you said, they did use Riri and just kind of like the the action sequence MacGuffin, but yeah, um, yeah, she was she was fine. Um, she was cool by the end. She had the suit and like she's gonna be launched into armor wars and her own show Ironheart and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. so there's definitely bridges that they're they're building there and like kind of a more inherent tie to Wakanda. I think is cool and I think it works and it potentially drives some of those characters into to Ironheart in a more substantial way and. I, they did a good job with the character. She did, though at times, feel a little out of place in this. You know, when I, I, I would agree with probably the runtime's a little long. And like we've mm-hmm. talked about, there are ways to kind of pull back on this. And the things that stick out as pushing that runtime are the MCU things. You know what I mean? They're yeah. not the Black Panther or the Wakanda story. They're the MCU pieces of this. And they stick out a little more because the story being told by Coogler and 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 everyone inside of Wakanda is I think so profound and so streamlined and so well done that all of the pieces that are bolted onto the side do feel mm-hmm. like they stick out more than they would inside like a guardians film or Thor love and thunder or something like that where like the guardians are kind of stuck in there, but it kind of works and just flows right inside of Thor four or whatever. And, um, yeah, it, nothing works in that movie. But no, yeah. it didn't. But like, there's it doesn't nothing like sticks out as being like, oh, this is definitely world building, right? Like, it, this you get I, you're yeah. getting two movies coming out of Wakanda Forever that you know, with or without them, like the story is exactly the same to a degree. Like Riri, you could maybe argue a little bit that like she's more integral to the story, definitely than the Thunderbolt stuff. Yeah. Um, but there are elements of it that it's like we could have gotten around this maybe without having as much of it. But like, like you said, I don't, I don't feel this it's Riri's presence or anything that's done with her is a detriment to the film. Um, Mm -hmm. It does add to the runtime though. 
and it, it but it gives you some cool action sequences and um her flying around at the end sequence is a lot of fun and she's got a good energy to her the the young actress that's playing her and i'm it made me look forward to the character inside of the mcu going forward too so like it kind of did everything it needed to do yeah well and the one thing i'd say in her defense is that they did tie why Shuri felt so strongly about her and that she saw a reflection of herself. Yes, true. Um, yeah. And why she wanted to keep her safe. But yeah, no, um, like you said, it was kind of those MCU bolt-on pieces that, uh, that, that was actually a great observation <laughs> that slowed this one down mm-hmm. uh, if it did wherever. But yeah, it's probably time for final thoughts and a letter grade. And, uh, you know, I'll go first and get out of your way. Um for me, like I said, the hierarchy of power in my phase four rankings is about to change. And for the films, this movie, Wakanda Forever, has dethroned Spider-Man No Way Home as wow. my favorite phase four movie. It just, they did just such a great job with telling this story, with delivering something with some true heart, some true emotion, some true intent. And like all the things that I didn't like were just kind of, like you said, bolt on little pieces that um, you could kind of forget about Um, the movie. Like, honestly, like it it is long. It is somber. It's not one that, I think myself or others will be running out to see multiple times. Like was the case Mm -hmm. with the first black Panther movie. Um, It's one I'm happy to have seen the once in the theater and I'll come back and um, watch it once it hits streaming. It's interesting that the long thought provoking dark and somber movie is the MCU movie. Mm -hmm. And then the light, action popcorn movie is the DC movie. Um, yeah. Like black Adam was the more fun movie, but Wakanda forever was definitely the better film yeah, um, for sure. So uh, yeah, this one, it's a probably an a minus from me. Uh, it would have been an a, but I really hate that Julia Louis Dreyfus character. Like, <laughs> Holy smokes. Marvel one shot would have taken care of that. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it just it dragged an already long movie down immensely, like it, it freaking anchor. And so yeah, I can't give you an A when you got anchors on your movie. So, but uh, yeah, A minus is nothing to scoff at. But yeah, Timbo, final thoughts and a letter grade. Yeah, I, I'm I'm quite shocked at how well all this came together. If you look at the turbulence inside of the production that we followed along with the difficulties, like I said, or almost the impossibility of pulling together a whole movie that isn't weighed down so much by the passing of a tremendous human being and the character that it doesn't progress the grander story forward. Mm. Um, That was a real risk I saw inside of this. And um, with everything that they pulled together together here, the powerful performance from Latita Wright and Angela Bassett were real standouts. The introduction of Namor, um, even even Winston Duke as Mbaku, I really enjoyed all of that. I enjoyed yes. all of the components yeah. of this film. Um, you know, Mbaku taking up the throne was seemingly, I think that's the direction they're going. So that was very cool. Um, so there's everything worked here. Like all the Wakanda pieces, I will say, 
all worked and in mm-hmm. a way that I was not expecting. And they they did this respectfully, but they also created quite a quite a movie centered around a very difficult event. And and for that I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give this thing I'm gonna ignore the what I'll consider a Marvel one shot. Um, I'm gonna give this one an A. I think this is a very very deserving movie of that that letter grade, given the circumstance that it was filmed under. And I think that the pivot that Kugler had to make make and his in his writing partners and all that with having to adapt in and around T'Challa and Chadwick Boseman, that's that's no small feat. Um, I imagine mm-hmm. this movie was quite different. Um, when they originally wrote this and the way that it turned out as being this this send off to that character and, and to that the human being of Chadwick Boseman too I think they should be very proud of what they put together here um, and what they delivered and what it what it means for not only Wakanda but also you know what's next inside of that universe so I'm gonna leave this one as an a it's one of those movies that, like you said, and to echo, it's going to be a streamer revisit. Like I haven't even revisited No Way Home, to be honest with you, or Multiverse of Madness. But this is a film that I'll sit down and I'll sit down with my wife too. She hasn't been keeping up with Phase Four, but I think it's a necessary watch, and it's a necessary rewatch, probably when the streamer comes out, to fully appreciate everything that was done. I don't, I still don't think I'm exactly there. Um, and so if you've missed something, I'm going to chalk it up to that. That it, it, it is that rewatch is necessary because I think there's a lot of subtleties that Coogler had put in there and a lot of the deliveries of everything that, that can't fully be appreciated even in that three hour runtime sitting there and concentrating for that long is, is difficult when you're dealing with, with the topics that they, they have inside of this. So yeah, solid yeah. A for me, get out there, watch this thing. It, it's, it's really well done. Probably one of the best sequels inside of the MCU. Yeah, no, absolutely. And to Namor yield bitch. Yeah. But <laughs> that was cool too. Like him being like, I like where they left him. It's like one day, like you know, I was defeated, oh, yeah. but we'll we'll come back to this at some point. It was a bit abrupt with the 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 well, them showing fight up to the, the shit. death <laughs> and the yield, and then it's like, okay, we're friends now. Let's talk. Everybody, let's stop. Yeah. But uh, anyways, I digress. So uh, I hope you enjoyed our review of Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. Uh, if you did and you're not a subscriber already, please do subscribe to the podcast feed. Every week we deliver something in this space uh, on the podcast, either nerd news or we invite somebody in uh, to give us a bit of expertise from a facet of this world of nerd. Or you can join us on our YouTube channel where we've got all sorts of toy reveals and our boy Tokyo Joey on the streets of Japan scoping out all the cool stuff that you can't see on this side of the pond and our toy stream lives that show up there once a month as well um, where we showcase the nerdy things that we've been buying over the course of the year or of the week, month. Um, And uh, yeah, all that being said... For the nerd room, I'm Carlos. And I want to say something catchy here, but I got nothing because I'm just a plain old vanilla dude. (laughs) He's the Tim. And I'm Tim. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you so much for entering the nerd room. This has been a Nerd Room Podcast production. You can find our hosts Tim, Troy, Sanjay, and Carlos on Twitter at TheNerdRM, TroyTheBoy87, Sanjabi, 
and CDN Caped Crusade R. For more content from The Nerd Room, check out thenerdroom.net. And don't forget to subscribe to The Nerd Room on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, wherever you plug in. Use the hashtag WeTheNerd to keep up with the latest from The Nerd Room on Instagram and Twitter.